Our first reading is from 1 Samuel. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And then he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel is from John, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, 
follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and, and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. There's a scene in It's a Wonderful Life after George and the angel Clarence have dried out from their icy plunge into the river when they go to the local watering hole, a place George remembers as Martini's. The bartender Nick owns the place now and it's seedier and more raucous than George remembers. And a belligerent Nick asks George, and that's another thing. Where do you come off calling me Nick? In today's gospel, the question Nathaniel asks Jesus is, how do you know me? But I imagine he has that same sneer, an aggravated tone as he questions Jesus. Irritated, cynical, skeptical. After all, he was already halfway there when Philip told him that Jesus came from Nazareth. Nathaniel and Philip were from Bethsaida, and Nazareth would have been their hometown rival, like Shelby and Kings Mountain. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases Nathaniel's question, saying, Where did you get that idea? You don't even know me. Psalm 139 assures us that contrary to what Nathaniel or we may think, God does know us. The psalmist declares, you are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord. You know it completely. Returning to the message, Peterson says it this way, you know when I leave and when I get back, I am never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me and you're there. Then up ahead and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. 
John Ilva Syker's hymn, Borning Cry, echoes the psalmist. I was there to hear your borning cry. I'll be there when you are old. I rejoice the day you were baptized to see your life unfold. God formed our inward parts and knit us together in our mother's wombs. So yes, God knows each one of us. But despite being known by God, we can probably all recall times in our lives when we were incapable of hearing or seeing God. When, like Samuel, we didn't yet know God. The text says visions of God were not widespread. Whatever ministry to the Lord he was engaging in, it didn't include hearing God or seeing God move. It took Eli telling Samuel that the Lord was speaking for him to hear and respond. Or we're like Nathaniel, and our own biases keep us from seeing God. When Philip first told him where Jesus was from, Nathaniel was dismissive, asking, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel's prejudice against Nazareth becomes an obstacle, obscuring his vision so that he could not see God's own son standing right in front of him. Or maybe we're even like Eli, who must have seen clearly once serving the Lord as a temple priest, but he could no longer see. While his eyes may have been clouded by cataracts or his vision may have deteriorated because of old age, the text can be read less literally. We know that Eli had allowed his sons to abuse the power of the priesthood, seizing the best offerings and laying with the women who came to present sacrifices. Perhaps his failure to hold them accountable for their selfishness and exploitation affected his ability to see the Lord clearly. It is one thing to be known by God, and another to see or hear God. But then what do we do when we do hear God speak or see God's, happen God's work happening in the world around us? Then each of us must decide how we will respond. Samuel, for one, is tentative Eli tells him to answer the Lord, saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And Samuel responds to the voice calling out to him, saying, Speak, for your servant is listening. Hebrew professor Robert Alter cites a 16th century scholar when he wonders whether Samuel drops Lord from his response deliberately. Was Samuel feeling skeptical or dismissive himself, uncertain about who he is really addressing? However he feels initially, he listens to the Lord, and then reluctantly he delivers to Eli the dismal but unsurprising news 
that the Lord intends to remove Eli's priestly authority. Nathaniel responds more immediately with adoration and praise. He is transformed when he realizes Jesus wasn't playing games. The recognition that Jesus had seen him and knew him prompts his reply. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. How will we answer God's call to us? This weekend, we commemorate the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who would have been 92 if he had not been assassinated in 1968 when he was only 39 years old. An Atlanta preacher, King grounded his calls for racial, racial justice in scripture and theology. On Friday, April 12, 1963, Good Friday that year, King was arrested during protests in Alabama, and a few days later, he wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail, addressing white moderate Christians who he charged were more devoted to order than to justice, who preferred a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. King wrote critically, naming his disappointment that the very same people who he believed would be co-workers with God have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. And he urged his audience to repent, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. King's words challenge me I am uncomfortable. After all, I want to be one of the good people. I've learned a lot about white supremacy, systemic racism, and my own biases since I began seminary. But I confess that when the Capitol was attacked on January 6th, I knew it was wrong evil, sinful, but I was ignorant of the ways in which our brown and black siblings in Christ were brutalized watching such a very different response to the nonviolent protesters and even to the violent rioters than we have seen before. I know I've quoted the Reverend Dr. Yvonne Delk before. She's the one who taught me what you see depends largely on where you sit. From where I sit, I could not see what Bishop Yahail Curry of the Metro Chicago Senate of the ELCA saw and shared later that if the rioters had been brown or black, 
they would have been shot. I've since heard that echoed by the voices of other black and brown siblings here in North Carolina. During the summer after George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis, as our Senate and denomination engaged in conversations about racial justice, the Reverend Dr. Shanitria Cuthbertson, who pastors Emmaus in West Charlotte, described conviction as being convinced and confident that something is true. The work of the Holy Spirit, conviction, leads us to acknowledgement, admission, sight, and godly sorrow. A cycle of restoration. What I experience when I hear Dr. King's words is Holy Spirit-driven conviction that helps me see how I perpetuate injustice and the sin of racism by my own appalling silence. And this conviction leads me to godly sorrow that our black and brown siblings whose inward parts were formed by God and who also were knit together in their mother's wombs, siblings created in the image of God and imbued with dignity from God, have daily experiences where they are told they have less worth or less dignity than another person whose skin is fairer. And that godly sorrow leads me to want to love even more fiercely and out loud. King wrote in this same letter, was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate, or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice, or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? My prayer is that being known by God, we will hear and see God at work around us, and respond by being extremists for love and justice. Amen.